Well, good morning. Let's uh, look at our Bibles and turn to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. We're going to be finishing up the chapter this morning. And we'll be looking at uh, the last three or last six verses, uh, verse 69 through 75. So Matthew 26, verse 69 through 75. It says, Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You were also with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you are also one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Today we're going to be looking at the life of Peter, and specifically we'll look at the fall of Peter as he denies the Lord three times. But I also want to look at ultimately how the Lord restores him and how he uses him in a mighty way. And so, before we get into the denial of uh, Peter of the Lord, let's just rewind and just see how we got to this place in the first um, in the first place. So, we are first introduced to Peter in Luke chapter five, and he is standing at the water's edge, and there are some other soon-to-be disciples there. They're washing their nets after a long night out fishing, and it's a long night out because they didn't catch anything, and they're wrapping up their day kind of disappointed with their, with their uh, lack of fish. And Jesus tells Peter to go back into the deep and let down his net for a catch one more time. And Peter says to the Lord, Master, we've toiled all night and we've caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And so Peter goes back out there and he catches a great number of fish, it says, so much so that his net was breaking. And uh, they actually had to bring a second boat out there. And as they bring the second boat out there, both ships begin to sink as they go back to shore. Such a miraculous uh, sign that God had shown Simon Peter there. And when Simon Peter sees this, it says that he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And from that time on, Jesus gives Peter a new role in his life. He says, Don't be afraid, Peter. From now on, you will be fishers of men. And once Peter returns to land from that uh, incredible, miraculous fishing adventure, um, he says that Peter forsook all, and he followed Jesus. Peter walked away from all that he ever knew as a fisherman, and he took up this new role as a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. Peter had a unique privilege. He was one of the original 12. He spent three years of his life ministering alongside Jesus Christ walking along the same paths he went to, hearing all the messages that he would speak to the various crowds. As a disciple, Peter Peter also preached the gospel with power. It was given to him the power to also cast out demons, to heal people of their infirmities. And so we see that uh, Peter was given this very unique privilege um, to be one of the original twelve. Peter was also a a very likable person, very relatable. Uh, It seems that he was, or assumed to be, the leader type role in this uh, group of disciples. 
He, was, he seemed to be the mouthpiece for the disciples. While the other disciples may have been thinking along the same way or maybe would have wanted to say the same things, Peter was the one who was bold enough to say it. And so uh, Peter oftentimes uh, would be the one you'll see initiating questions or saying things that seem to be uh, kind of out there, but yet the rest of the disciples, it says, also thought the same things. Uh, as you look at Peter's life, there's at least two statements that, and, or two moments that Peter has where he boldly proclaims who Jesus is. In one instance, you see him, um, the disciples and Jesus are going from one city to the next, and Jesus asks his disciples a question. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the rest of the disciples say, well, some say John the Baptist, and others, you know, Elijah. But, there, you know, there's another group that says Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But then Jesus directs the question directly at them and says, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, probably one of the most famous quotes he gives, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answers him in return and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my father who is in heaven. This is something that was revealed to Peter by God. This is a revelation by God to Peter. And he's able to identify Jesus as the Messiah, the son of the living God. Another instance that we see is in John 6, where at this point in time, you know, some people took offense to what Jesus was saying. Some people didn't like what they were hearing. And it says that at that time, many of the followers or disciples withdrew and were no longer walking with him. His teachings were too hard for them to accept. And so they walked away from him. And Jesus, turning to his original 12, asked them the same thing. Do you want to go also with them? Do you also want to leave and walk away? And Peter again says to the Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Another profound statement by Peter. Peter realized that the Lord, Jesus is Lord. He is the giver of eternal life and that he is the Holy One of God. He is the Son of God. These are two incredible statements by Peter. And while Peter had some great moments of revelation of who Jesus is, there also seems to be this uh, sense in which, in the very next breath, Peter would say something that would be so contrary to God's will. For example, just seemingly hours after he just said that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 16 that he would suffer, that he would be killed, that he would be raised up then on the third day after being uh, crucified. And Peter felt the need to take Jesus aside and rebuke the Lord. And he says, how can you say such a thing? Peter says to him, far be it from you, Lord, for this shall not happen to you. And he turned aside, this is Jesus, he turned aside and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Peter, even though he had just mentioned that, that he is the son of God, could not wrap his mind around the fact that the Lord would also suffer and die. This was not, this, he couldn't uh, reconcile these two ideas. This didn't fit in his thinking with what the Messiah would be like. And so Peter rebukes the Lord. And essentially, Jesus says to him in response, Peter, you are talking like Satan would. Satan always tries to discourage someone from doing the will of God. Get behind me. You're thinking like a man. You're thinking outside of God's plans. You don't have his will in mind. 
That has to be one of the harshest rebukes that a disciple received from the Lord. And yet it was necessary. So, as you can see, sometimes Peter has these wonderful truths that he's able to boldly proclaim, and other times he's very quick to put his foot in his mouth and say things that I'm sure afterwards he regretted very much. All that to say is that these are the very things that Peter does. These are the things that we can relate to because sometimes we can be just like him. We can be very quick to speak, slow to listen. And so in some ways, Peter is a very relatable person. But you see, Peter was also a man who had a lot of self-confidence. He had a lot of trust in his own strength, in his own ability to do things. And because of that, uh, Peter learns a lesson today uh, that I believe we can all learn a lesson from as well about the dangers of self-reliance, on the dangers of self-confidence. And in order to kind of, before we jump into that, I think we have to kind of just take a second to, to think about theologically. Um, in the Bible, it teaches us that all humans are born sinners. We all have a sin nature. We are all sinners by birth. All mankind is sinful, evil, corrupt. There is none righteous, it says in the Bible, no, not one. We are all susceptible, even as believers, to the pitfalls that come um, along with that old nature. As Christians, yes, we have been saved. Yes, we've been redeemed. We've been given a new nature. We are a new creation in Christ. We have been called to walk in newness of life. We've been ordained to do good works. And as believers, our desires have changed. Our longings have changed. Our goals, our loves have all changed. But we still fight against our own fallen flesh. Among Christians, there is a sense in which we know and are aware of our own sinfulness, our own wretchedness. Uh, Paul himself says this. He, sa he essentially says, Oh, wretched man that I am. Basically, I inwardly desire to do holy things. Inwardly, I long for righteousness, but there are other principles operating within me that drag me in the opposite direction to sin. And that's because we have a fallen nature. And it's important for every believer to recognize uh, that there is this fallen nature that you have within you. You are a new creation. You're living, though, in a world that is corrupt, living in a society that encourages, encourages you to do the exact opposite of God's will. And so the point being of all this is that you cannot and should not trust your own flesh. You cannot trust safely your own strength or your own personal willpower. I say all this again because trusting in your own flesh and your own strength is a dangerous place to be. And this is exactly where Peter finds himself. Peter, from this experience, will learn a lesson of the dangers of self-confidence. And I believe, hopefully, we can also learn from that as well. Just two weeks ago, we looked at a passage uh, earlier, in Matthew 26, verse 31, where Jesus had just spoken to his disciples in the garden, and he says to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. 
and so said all the disciples. Jesus had just predicted that the disciples would all be made to stumble. The disciples are all going to fall away from him this night. All of them will be scattered. But here, Peter, being confident in himself, not realizing his own weakness, basically says, Lord, I know that you know about the future. I know that you've done really well in predicting things. I know that you know what you're talking about most of the times. But you just, you just don't know how strong I am. You don't know what I'm capable of. You're probably right about these other disciples, but not me, Lord, not me. I'm stronger than they are. I will never be made to stumble. The pride that Peter had here is getting the better of him. And Jesus replies that you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And, and you would think at this point Peter would just stop and say, okay, well, I shouldn't say any more. But Peter then doubles down on his claim, on his promise, insisting that even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Peter would not back down from his confidence. He would not let go that he is strong enough to do these things. And it's important um, that we point out also, though, it's not just Peter here who's saying these things, because even in verse 35, it says that all the other disciples said to him as well. So this is a uh, Peter just being, again, the spokesman for the disciples. Peter just being the loudest one of them. I believe, though, that the Lord often allows us to go through the lowest point in our life to make us more Christ-like, to make us grow more in our spiritual walk and to humble us at many, many times. And I believe the Lord uses all those reasons to bring about the situation in Peter's life. Peter needed to learn humility. And as of now, Peter is not going to back down from his claims that he would not deny the Lord. And in an effort to actually prove his loyalty, um, we read just a few weeks ago again that Peter actually cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. There was this entourage of soldiers ready to take Jesus away in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter pulls out his sword, starts swinging, and actually attempting to stay true to his word that he would even be willing to die with him, um, he cuts off the ear, and Jesus ultimately later restores that ear, but Peter, again, trying to stay true to his word. I will not deny you, even if I have to die with you. In his mind, he is invincible. In his mind, he is going to be faithful to the end. And Peter has just foolish confidence in himself. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And at this point in time, Peter is primed for a fall. Though he may love the Lord and though he is a follower of the Lord, he is painfully oblivious to the weakness of his own flesh. And he is set up for a fall. And so that's where we pick up today. Uh, Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas. He's been arrested in the garden. And he is now being taken away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where he is on trial. Last week, uh, it pointed out in the passage that, that uh, Peter was following at a distance. And um, as you look at the four Gospels, it's actually really interesting that you'll see that kind of in between each of the encounters of where Jesus is on trial, you'll see a, just a cutaway to Peter and what he's doing. And um, each Gospel includes a little bit more information about what's taking place uh, in between these trials and what's taking place outside in the courtyard. 
And that's where we get a lot of the information about what took place with Peter. But essentially we know that based on the timeline of what happened that night, all the denials by Peter would have taken place roughly between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. So there's about this two-hour window uh, where this passage takes place. So let's look back again at our passage. Matthew 26, verse, 20, uh, 26, verse 69 says, Now Peter sat outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You were also with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're saying. And so Peter, it must have caught him off guard, you know, at this point in time. He's, he's just trying to follow at a distance. He's trying to blend in with the rest of the crowd. He's trying to hear and await what happens in this court. He's trying to figure out what's going to t- take place next with the Lord. And it's almost as if there's just this knee-jerk reaction that he just, he's just trying to deny him real quickly to be avoided uh, of being noticed. And so he pretends to not understand the question and denies having knowledge of who Jesus of Galilee is. That is Peter's first denial of the Lord. And it seems as though these, the next two denials did not come just back to back to back because it seems as though there was some time. Because here he's in the courtyard. The next situation, he's over by the gateway. And over by the gateway, he's met by another crowd who also questions him. It says in verse 71, when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And Peter here is now taking oaths, promising that he does not know who Jesus is. In fact, he won't even say Jesus. He just says, I do not know the man. He doesn't even call him by his name. And he promises his words are true with an oath. This is Peter's second denial of Christ. Then in verse 73, a little later, those who stood, stood up came and said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. And on this third occasion, Peter is um, off to the side, and someone comes up to him and notices that he has this Galilean accent. And he presses Peter, saying, you are indeed one of the disciples of Christ. Uh, and from John's encounter of this, it's really interesting to find out that the man who actually presses him with this question is a relative of Malchus, the very one who he had just cut off the ear of. And so this man would have likely have seen Peter before. He would have likely have heard his speech before. And there was no question in his mind that Peter was also one of the disciples. And so being caught in a lie, Peter vehemently denies it, saying, I do not know the man. And to, to seal the deal, he begins cursing and swearing. Essentially, he's pronouncing curses upon himself, saying, if I'm lying, God will be my witness, and he will judge me for my lies. This, uh, this sort of thing actually happens quite a bit in our society today. When someone uh, tells something that's not truthful, in order to prove that they are telling the truth, they begin adding things to their, uh, to their saying. And so it's, uh, you know, I swear to God, I'm telling you the truth. I cross my heart and I hope to die. I'm not lying to you. I swear on a stack of Bibles, I'm not lying. I swear on my life, I'm not lying to you. And it seems that the more ridiculous the lie that's being told, the more things they have to swear upon to get it to be believable. And that's at the point where Peter's at. He is swearing and cursing, saying, I do not know the man. 
How, how could Peter say such a thing? Peter had just acknowledged just chapters before that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And now he promises to men with curses and oaths saying, I do not know the man. Verse 74 says, immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him before, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so he went out and wept bitterly. There's also an interesting uh, little fact that Luke 22:60 adds. It says that after Peter had denied him, the rooster crows, and it says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord that he had said to him, before the rooster will crow, you will deny me three times. The Lord turned and looked at Peter as he was denying him. Perhaps one of the trials had just ended and, and the Lord was being taken through the courtyard and the words had just come out of Peter's mouth. The Lord would have been likely bound, being taken off. Um, he had just been bruised up and slapped. He had just endured all sorts of uh, accusations against him, all that were false. And the words just came out of Peter's mouth, the rooster crows, and the one that he had just denied three times looked at him straight in the eye. And Peter then, with that glance, remembers the words, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And it says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. This has to be one of the lowest points of Peter's life. He must have felt like an absolute failure. He must have felt, you know, how could I ever be forgiven for what I've just done? I denied my Lord three times. I'm not even worthy to be his disciple any longer. I promised I'd never deny him. I promised I'd go to death for him. And yet, in the matter of two hours, I denied even knowing him three times. I don't think that Peter's situation, though, is unique to us. I think all believers can relate to Peter. Sometimes I can be exactly like Peter. There have been times in my life where I did not stand up for what I believed in. There have been times where there were situations where it was not popular or socially acceptable to be a believer or to be someone uh, who proclaims boldly for the Lord. There have been times where I didn't express my faith as boldly as I should have. There have been times where I was fearful to stand up for what I believed in, or I wasn't a good testimony to those around me, as I should have been. Or I may have not acted in a way that would represent how a Christian should act to fellow unbelievers, to those who are around me that didn't know the Lord. I think these are things that all of us experience as believers. And so we can relate to how Peter must have felt. There are also times in believers' life, though, where they just fall into sin. You know, they're, they're, they're going about following the Lord faithfully. They're doing his will. They're being involved in ministry. And then they just get involved in sin, just in the very next breath. And you, you wonder to yourself, how could I have done that again? How could I have been following the Lord so faithfully, and then I just fall into this again, and I, I do something so contrary to God's will. And we think to ourselves, I know what the Lord has commanded me to do. I know what his word says I should do, and yet I did the total opposite of that. And we feel as though we're useless now. We say to ourselves, how could God ever use a person like me? How could he ever forgive someone like me for what I just did? I'm an absolute failure. And that's how Peter felt. He, he thinks to himself, I was trusting in myself. I thought I was strong enough to obey the Lord. 
I thought I could obey him and follow him to the end. I thought I would never deny him. And just like that, I blew it in a matter of two hours. And so Peter, feeling like a failure, feeling defeated, feeling useless, and feeling as though there was no more use for him by the Lord anymore, where did Peter go next? It says he went right back to fishing. It was the only thing that he ever knew before Jesus. Back when Jesus had called him, he was out there fishing. That was his previous occupation. And so he goes back to fishing. With failure and defeat on his mind, he returns to his old occupation. And that's the end of the passage for me, and I could just close up and end there, but I don't feel as though that would do justice to the story. Because was that really the end for Peter? Was Peter just useless now by the Lord? Could the Lord no longer use him? Was Peter just too big of a failure that he could never be restored and used for God's purposes? Thankfully, the story of Peter doesn't end there. Thankfully, the Lord doesn't give up on Peter, and he doesn't give up on us. Though Peter denied the Lord that night, and though we may deny the Lord, or though we may sin against him greatly in another area of our lives, God is in the business of restoring fallen believers. He is in the business of getting them back up on their feet and having them used for his purposes. So let's see how this story does unravel. Let's see how it does end. Let's turn to John 21. 21 verse 15. John 21 verse 15. And I just want you to see how the Lord deals with Peter. And I want you to be encouraged by seeing this encounter by the fact that, again, this is not the end for Peter's life. And the Lord is about to do something great through Peter but first he must restore him. So John 21, verse 15. And again, uh, the context of this passage is that Peter had gone back to fishing. The other disciples had followed along with him. He's discouraged, feels like a failure. And after the resurrection, after Jesus is raised from the dead, Jesus appears to the disciples for the third time, preparing breakfast for them. And after eating, Jesus uh, wants to speak with Peter and he wants to publicly restore him. And so he says here, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Lord, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. It's interesting to note, too, and it's been pointed out many times by um, various people, that there are two different words of love being used here in these verses. Because what Jesus is actually asking, he's saying, Peter, do you love me? And that love is, do you love me with the highest and noblest kind of love? Do you agape love me? Peter. And Peter, who had before proclaimed to love the Lord and would do whatever he could, he would go to whatever length, even death, replied, yes, Lord, you know that I'm fond of you. You know that I have affection for you. Peter had been humbled at this point. He could no longer boast that he would never forsake the Lord, even if others did. He had learned his lesson that day. And and Jesus replies to him, okay, if if you love me, feed my lambs. And what Jesus is saying here is that there is a practical way of demonstrating your love for me, and that's by feeding my sheep, ministering to them, teach them, pastor them, feed my sheep. Verse 16 says, and he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Again, for a second time, Peter is asked if he loves the Lord. And Peter replies a second time without any confidence in himself and says, 
Yes, Lord, again, you, you know that I'm fond of you. You know I have affection for you. Peter realized what his flesh was capable of. He realized he loves the Lord, but he doesn't love the Lord as much as he should. He loves the Lord. He wants to love him more, but he realizes his own, his own shortcomings. And again, Jesus replies to him, if you love me, tend my sheep. Jesus says to Peter, I have lambs, I have sheep in my flock that need someone like you, Peter, to tend to them. They need someone like you to look over them, to care for them, to minister to them. They need someone who's loving and caring, someone who loves the shepherd as much as you do. Tend my sheep, Peter. And remember verse 17, he said again to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Again, this is the third time he's asking him, do you love me? And at this time, uh, he meets actually, it's interesting, because the word he uses for love is no longer agape. He's saying, Peter, do you have affection for me? Are you fond of me, Peter? And he said, do you have that, that same affection you've proclaimed earlier? And it, and it grieves the heart of Peter because as he's reflecting upon this question being asked, he's recalling, obviously, to mind the fact that he had just denied him three times. But the Lord was giving Peter the opportunity three times now to confess his love for the Lord. Peter, humbled, knowing his own weakness, having no confidence in his own self, has to appeal to God and says to him, Lord, you know all things. You know, you are omniscient. You know that I love you. You know that I'm fond of you. And what I find actually most interesting about this encounter is what the Lord didn't say to Peter. Because he could have said to him and could have taken a totally different approach and could have said, Peter, are you sorry for what you did? Peter, will you promise you're never going to do that again? But instead, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus simply challenges Peter to love him more challenges him to demonstrate his love by feeding his sheep, by being involved in ministry. And in doing this, Jesus restores Peter in the presence of the rest of the disciples. And now he gives him a purpose. No longer he's saying, forget about the fishing. Forget about going to this old occupation. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Care for them. Demonstrate you love Christ by feeding his sheep. What I just find so amazing about thinking about Peter's life um, and really just the Lord in general is that Jesus uses people like Peter to do his work. Jesus uses people like us to do his work, to serve in ministry, preaching the gospel, making disciples, um, just involved in just general church care. Peter is a broken man. He has failed the Lord and he can only honestly admit to be fond of him to have affection for him. He loves the Lord, but knows he doesn't love him as he should. And oftentimes, as I think about that, I think, you know, how can the Lord use someone whose love for him is at times cold or, or is maybe not where it should be? And it's just a reminder that the Lord uses us where we're at. He doesn't give up on us when we sin and when we fail to live lives that are exactly as they should be, when we fail to live lives in a Christ-like manner. He reminds Peter that if he loves him, demonstrate it through service. A love for Christ is motivated, is the motive, sorry, a love for Christ is the motivation that we have for service. 
And maybe today you feel like Peter. Maybe you feel weak, defeated. You feel like you can barely admit to even being fond of him, to have affection for him. And Jesus is saying to you today, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Minister to others. Care for their needs. Demonstrate you love me through service. And Peter, at this point in time, though being restored, must have felt like, well, some of my best days are before me. I did so many things before this. I was, I was doing well for you, Lord. He may have felt like, you know, I'm just at this point, I'm just a washed-up disciple who's now been restored. Can I really be used for anything greater than what I have been used for? And yet, Peter needed to go through some of the darkest times in his life to be used even more mightily for God's work. Because as we look at the life of Peter um, in the later years, he's used for even greater purposes than his former years. But Peter first needed to be humble. He needed to learn that lesson to not rely upon himself, but to fully rely upon God. In order to be used as effectively as he would be, the Lord had to humble him first. And uh, keep in mind, too, also, this is fair, fairly, uh, should be fairly, fairly quickly pointed out, too, that this is before a time where Peter received the Holy Spirit. This is before a time where the, the Holy Spirit would permanently reside in Peter. And now, instead of coming and going, the disciples would have the Spirit permanently residing within them. And we'll see, actually, what Peter does now restored, now having the Holy Spirit within him. Peter would, with the Holy Spirit's empowerment, turn the world upside down. And we'll look at what he did, just in passing, just briefly, in Acts. We learn in Acts 2 that he preached the gospel to thousands of people, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And it says, and those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, Peter was used to lead 3,000 souls to Christ. And uh, this would become the very first members of the church. Later in uh, Acts 4, John and Peter were preaching the gospel to various crowds, including the priests, including the temple captains, including the Sadducees and various other people there. And it says that in the sermon, 5,000 people came to know Christ as their Savior. It's incredible what the Lord is doing there through Peter. I can't even imagine preaching a message and shortly after that finding out that 5,000 souls made the decision to forsake their sin and follow Christ. That, that's, that's incredible. And yet the Lord is using Peter here to add to the church, to minister to souls who needed to be saved. Elsewhere we read about Peter's ability to, to heal the sick, the lame. And it's all miraculously done through the working of Christ in his life. Uh, additionally, and this is huge for us as Gentiles, Peter is notably the one who delivers the gospel message to Cornelius, who ends up becoming the very first uh, Gentile in the church. And as a direct result of his obedience, the gospel is now spread to the Gentile nation. Peter, who was once at his lowest point in life, a disciple who felt like he was a complete failure, has now been fully restored and now is miraculously being used by the Lord to reach the entire world. All along, Jesus was using these failures in his life to teach him and to prepare him for this miraculous ministry that he would have in the book of Acts. I do find it interesting, though, um, 
in the later years of Peter that he writes this in 1 Peter 5. He says in his epistle, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Peter, I believe, as he wrote his epistle, reflected upon this series of events in his life. And as he was thinking about it, he writes it for the future generations to learn from. Peter was humbled by the Lord, and the Lord, in return, extended a tremendous amount of grace to him. And in due time, God exalted Peter to a position where he would have this incredible act, where he would, incredible impact of ministry. Not because Peter had his own strength and he did it on his own, but because he was empowered through the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. And through it all, we learn that God still uses broken people. He still uses people full of failures to do his work. He uses the humble, the contrite in spirit. God doesn't desire the haughty or the the proud spirit to do his work. He wants to use the lowly, the meek to do it. And praise the Lord for a story like this, how he uses Peter, all of his failures, for his glory. Let's praise him. Dear Lord Jesus, we're just thankful for this, this portion of scripture where we can look at how you use a nobody to do your work. You use someone who is met at his lowest point, yet, Lord, you use him for your glory and for your purposes. Lord, we admit that, Lord, there's been times in our lives where, Lord, we don't follow you as we should, and, Lord, our love for you isn't as, as great as it should. And yet, Lord, we know that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess them to you. And we're thankful, Lord, that you use people like us to do your ministry, to preach to others, to share your word, to disciple others. We pray that, Lord, we would continue on in our ministry for you, that we would love you and grow to love you more and more each day. Pray that we would learn from this, uh, the life of Peter and that we'd be humble and learn to rely upon you and not our own strength for ministry. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.